Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Hey everybody. Hey monkeys. Happy holidays. This episode we talk to the delightful and lovely and very friendly and warm. I'm giving her a good intro because uh turns out she's actually a really nice person. You'll understand here in a minute <laughs> what, what I'm talking about. Uh, Emmy-nominated actress Sharon Lawrence. You may know her best as Sylvia Sipowitz on the ABC drama series NYPD Blue, on which she was fantastic, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. One of the most familiar faces on TV and in film. She currently is in the Lifetime movie Poinsettias for Christmas, or Poinsettias for Christmas. Uh, you can find that right now on My Lifetime On Demand. So come along with me, won't you, and talk with Sharon Lawrence. Here we go. We're going to start. We started. I'll introduce you... um a little bit later as a, a little preamble so I can talk about you when you're not here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting strategy. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I'll assess... Very uh, modern no, I, I need uh, this time to talk to assess uh, what I want to say later. Uh-huh. Exactly. Right. So anybody listening to this now knows that what I just said a few minutes ago about you, I determined all that. I distilled all the information from what we're doing right now. So this is a time bend. Be really interesting. This is a totally. Yeah. You're, you are you're time traveling. So right here. what I've planted in your head though is like, oh, what is he going to say about me? <laughs> I better be really nice in this conversation. Hi, Sharon Lawrence. Uh, Larry, <laughs> how are you? I'm really nice. That's uh, what. I... <laughs> hmm, well, we'll just see about that, won't we? <laughs> Well, we'll see how the next few minutes goes. Exactly. Uh, let's You'd be get the judge of that. Let's get out of the way right away because uh, I'm I'm hoping that whenever somebody's listening to this, uh, it will be right around the time that they are going to see your lifetime movie. Oh yeah, probably available on demand, and I assume will be repeated. Um, and that is point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there it is. Poinsettias for Christmas. Do you say poinsettias or poinsettias? Isn't this an interesting debate? It's one that we had on set. Seriously? You bet. Because I think it it is it's a universal question. And my castmates, Bethany Joy Lenz and John Schneider, um, and Marcus Rosner and our director Christy Wolf, Christy Rowe Wolf, we all I'm so glad had this, you conversation. Had this conversation. And Lauren London. Yes. We all think how do you do it? And and it's um, there's no real hard, fast rule. I think if you're Southern like I am, um, 
I always grew up saying poinsettias. I we, grew up in Texas, and I was going to say the exact yeah, same thing. Yeah, we drop that extra syllable because yeah. it's French, well, and we can't we nope. can't figure it out. Heck no, that's furrin. That's furrin. Uh, and we ain't got time for that. I mean, if we're dropping G's and stuff off that's of stuff, right. then we don't certainly don't have time for no, that. Uh's. No, we don't waste. Uh, so uh, you get a good is. poinsettia, and, <laughs> and 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 usually you'll get it for Christmas. Well, now it sounds funny that you say mm-hmm. poinsettia. Um, yeah, okay, anyway. However you pronounce it, it's let's just be fancy and say poinsettias for Christmas. Uh, lifetime. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the movie? Is it uh, is it a, just a bunch of flowers? Is that what it's about? Well, for two it's, hours? A little, it's a little deeper than that. And okay. as my my friend Bethany Joylands, I mentioned her name before, and uh-huh. I'll just call her Joy from here on out All because right. that's not only is that what she goes by, but that is what she is. She's a good friend. We met on One Tree Hill and oh, years ago, and um. I I'm such a, a an admirer of her uh, her work ethic and her talent and just the way she walks in the world. She's um she's a lovely lovely spirit. And nice. as she says in one of the um one of the posts that she put on Instagram is she says I gotta go save the farm and that's really what happened. She has to <laughs> save the farm. She has to save the poinsettias that her family um. Myself as her mom and John Schneider, um, uh, who you, a lot of your listeners would know as Bo Duke, but right. also now as a contestant on Dancing with the Stars Correct. because he has just amazed everybody with his. Well, not not those of us that are in the musical theater world because we know that that's where he started. Yeah, and he's, he's got great skills. He's in that a song area. dance man, exactly. Yeah, he, he did is, it. And he's, he's done proved a whole it bunch of stage stuff. Yeah. yeah, and he's so much fun. Um, we need her natural talent nat- natural horticulture talent that she is squandering because she's gone off to the big city um to live her life to chart her path and that's a story that a lot of us can relate to what happens when you are looking for something more but you know that that your gift was right there all along. I mean, on some level, it's what Dorothy w- was dealing with when she when she wanted to seek Oz. Right. And, and it's not just like there's no place like home. It's that you are integral to your home in so many ways. And if you have a if you're a big part of it, you will always be a p- big part of it, whether you're absent or present. And so many of us come home on holidays, and it can be complicated. But it can also be a great reminder of why we still mean so much to the place that we grew up in. That's actually really interesting because I think you and I can relate a little bit. You grew up, as you said, in the South in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. You were born in Charlotte. Yeah, I grew up in West Texas, um, and it was never one of those things where I was just dying to get out, but I knew I was going to leave. I just kind of had – I came here for college and stayed basically on the West Coast with one little stint back in Texas because radio. Uh, mm-hmm. It drags you around all over the place. So it was never like I – was dying to get out, you know, kick the dust of this, you know, town off my heels and move on to the big city. Um, but that kind of dichotomy of it's home, but it's not a place that I gravitate back to that much. And yet I'm so glad I grew up there. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Right. I feel, I'm so I glad I had that upbringing and that experience. And when I go home, I know that in my parents' mind, I'm still part of their household. Mm-hmm. Of course I am. Yeah. 
Do and you that's ever a get, beautiful thing. Do you ever get relatives? Because to this day, I'm in, I'm in my 50s, and I still have relatives ask me, so when y'all coming back to Texas? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I'm coming back. I've, been, I've lived out here longer than I've lived anywhere in yeah. my life, even where I grew up. Right. And, and this, this, this uh, movie deals with that because yeah. she resists it, you know, understandably so. Again, it's about charting her path. Right. And, and the reason that poinsettias are important is because that's the family business is they, and, and when you think about that too, um, I'm on a show called The Ranch. Well, I'm on and off again because I'm, I'm one of Sam Elliott's uh, love interests, and it, it it depends on what season <laughs> if they need this me or not. This is the Netflix show, right? Yeah, right, okay. right. And it's um, about a ranch, <laughs> and uh, I had interesting conversations with the producers, especially Ashton, about family farms, because that's really what I think drew Ashton to that. You know, his his roots are, are in that world. Mm-hmm. And um, the family farm is such, is so challenged, and there was a great documentary called Farmland that followed young farmers, I think four or five of them, and the big choices that they have in front of them because the world in agriculture changes so fast, and, our, and some of those changes are based on um, economic forces that are, are market-driven and corporate Right. But some of it is also climate and just what's happening when when you're talking about growing things, whether the, whether it's it's um, produce or, or livestock. livestock. Right. And even it, just the idea of the family business mm-hmm. is a model that has deteriorated over right. time because of the lack of uh, brick and mortar stores and, and yeah. you know, fa- small businesses growing and passing things down. Also. You know, like we're talking about, kids move away now. It's right. it's just you you. It seems like there are more and more kind of transient uh, yeah. <laughs> kids as they grow up and go. It's just easier to kind of be a global citizen, and so that family business model just seems to be disappearing quite a bit. And too. yet, I do think that it is in the back of so many many minds of millennials, especially when you live in a town like we do, Los Angeles. That I've been here twenty five years now, and I see and feel maybe more importantly how dense it is mm-hmm. and what it would be like to live somewhere a little less populated mm-hmm. a little slower not slower pace so much as not a demanding pace right. that you get to set a bit more we have a place up in Idlewild which is about 2 hours away from Los Angeles and it's up in a mountain town and we we really do use that as a as a way to slow down because we my husband and I both know that we need it um but those people that go back to take care of of aging parents or um to to look for a place where maybe their school systems are are more um, appealing to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a story that you find all over the world, yeah. and that's why this film resonates in, in 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 ways that are very relatable. And you also get some fascinating information about poinsettias that you never <laughs> knew. I mean, we we have and we are being factual uh-huh. about, oh, about so how they grow. It, oh yeah, there's a crisis. Was there a poinsettia consultant there's on the cri- set? You bet. Was there, there a we were actually on a farm that grows um, poinsettias in uh, Vancouver, Canada, where oh. they do a lot of the the Christmas films. Oftentimes, have to be shot in the summer. Mm-hmm. That's a little inside industry secret. Oh, so when you wow. see us all layered up, we're pulling back the we curtain are here. hot. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, but but. 
Look for a sweaty Sharon Lawrence this year in poinsettias <laughs> for Christmas. Uh, um, but but we you need pine trees, so yeah. that's where there's that's where you get them. And uh, <laughs> we were on a beautiful property, and this company, um, this family farm, grows for Home Depot. So they know what they're doing. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So what's can you give me one? We'll move on to other things. By the way, <laughs> can you give me one fact about poinsettias or poinsettias? Uh, that would just, like, blow me away. Go ahead. Bring it. They don't live their life with red leaves what? the entire time. Really? Yes. Wow, I don't think I've seen... You know what? You only... Because really, unless you're on a poinsettia farm, you don't really see their growth process. So uh, right. So they're green? I'm assuming they're green until until they're not until, until they, they turn, turn red. and and I mean I thought that they you know that that red was like a like a rose you know you think a rose comes up yeah. and and it's when it opens the leaves are the, the petals are the color that the rose is going to be not the case with poinsettias and I'm just going to leave it at that because oh. that's where the crisis <gasps> is uh, oh you're yeah. such a tease look at that you are good yeah. all right so there's that uh we plugged that thing enough um <laughs> you've had you you always have a lot going on you just uh uh one of the reasons we're talking is because you just were involved in the Gilda awards mm-hmm. and uh, received yes, the Gilda award yeah. congratulations thank you it was quite uh, an honor and that's a very special there's a couple of things special about that of course it's uh, a cancer support group actually mm-hmm. that is uh, a part of that and when we talk about Gilda it's Gilda Radner of course and she must have been kind of a comedic presence in your life in terms of just being a fan of hers, yeah, right? I mean, you and I are of similar right. ages and right. grew up seeing this amazing woman. But as a woman and seeing somebody in that position and doing what she was mm-hmm. doing, I anytime I talk to female comedians um, who you know saw her and see her stuff, really impactful in terms of, oh, there's a woman doing characters and I could do that. I never saw, although I've done a lot of comedy, I never saw myself in the sketch comedy world right. so i i i watched her rather than identified with her right but what i certainly identify with is that she was a woman who faced something so uh not just mortally challenging and i mean it literally but in front of the world right how public her condition the the uh ovarian cancer Became and how um, vulnerable that seemed to make her Mm -hmm. in all of our eyes, and how moving it was to see her continue to smile and laugh and welcome the opportunity to still bring herself to the world that had fallen in love with her. Right. Even to the end. And what I learned from the cancer support communities of, they're global, actually. There are 175 chapters around the world. What I learned from this organization is is Gilda's history and why she was able to continue to smile and do it publicly was because of a cancer support group that she found here in um, Southern California, specifically in Santa Monica. It was called the Wellness Center at that time. Mm. She was devastated. She was in sort of seclusion. 
she did not want to talk about her disease. She did not feel like laughing again. Right. But that place, going to that place that her that Gene Wilder, her her husband, who we all also fell in love with, even earlier with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, sure, of the course. original. Um, and her her therapist, they're the ones that suggested that she go to this singular, unique place, which allowed her to be with other cancer patients and not feel like a fish in a bowl. And that is what changed her ability to say, I am still me. And that's what cancer support centers allow the patients and the families to do, Mm -hmm. because it's not about the medical treatment. It's not about your prognosis or your therapy, your, you know, medical, um, clinical work. It's about how do we give the cancer patient a community to continue to thrive. And that, to me, is what one of the miracles of her, her life really is. She wanted this um, resource to be available to everybody. So she started what many people may know of as the Gilda's Club. Right. And uh, in 2009, they joined forces with the Wellness Center here in Los Angeles and became the Cancer Support Community Um You'll find one, you know, you can just look at their website and find one near you, um, or and you can support them, too. That's what the awards are about. It's an evening that celebrates people who have been able to use their talents or their their network to build support for this world of, of cancer, survive, uh, just people going through it. Uh, it's less a medical uh, outreach than it is, like I said, more for mental health. Right. And they'll provide things like uh, nutritional counseling and um, massage therapies and um, Zumba classes. And the awardees this year were myself for the work that I've done with a couple of fundraising events that are, are shows. Those of us who can sing and dance on stage to raise money for various cancer support groups. And uh, the other recipient was um, Lisa Delito, who has written, done a beautiful documentary yeah, about Gilda. Gilda called Love Gilda. It's which so we, good. Yeah, we saw some, some of the, the footage from it, and it's, it's wonderful because it really captures that period of her life. Not not just the early days because she was documenting everything Gilda was. Yeah, she she was her own documentarian, but even including these tough times. It's been proven over the years that you know that there are medical treatments, and then there are these. Uh, you know, there is so much data that says quality of life improves just because you have support, because you uh, have a more of a positive outlook. That that you know the the mind can do so much good for your body and, and fighting mm-hmm. certain illnesses or just extending your life in a way that uh, at least allows you to feel like you're not alone and um, that you you know share this with other people and that can just do wonders to that's right just and it's about being able to it. talk to the to the person sitting next to you who's going through the same thing who says you know what I'm it's really a drag to have to have you know the bone pain that you have with mm-hmm. certain chemotherapies. How did you deal with it? Right. Rather you can't necessarily talk to your spouse about that. They can't understand. Yeah. But somebody who's going through it, we know tribes are important and that's what this mm-hmm. allows right. for is right. a tribe. Uh, is there a website people can check out that you can send people to or I uh, can- yes, cscla.org is the one 
locally. Great. Because the L.A. stands for Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, but there's certainly going to be something similar in uh, your area if you uh, mm-hmm. check that out. Mm-hmm. All right. right. Excellent. Yeah. Very nice. So uh, can we talk a little bit about your history? We talked about uh, mm-hmm. North Carolina, how you uh, lived there up through college. I did. did. Yeah, co- I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill. I'm right. a Tar Heel. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> for uh, three years, very recently, I was the uh, the General Alumni Association representative for the for the West Coast uh, alums, and I, I won the distinguished. I was given the, the distinguished young alumni award back in uh, two thousand one, and um, it really tied me to the university in uh, a great way because. I was going back every quarter, and it's wonderful for me to see how the departments that I spent my time in, which was the journalism school, which is a, a very high-level um, school. We we're ranked right up there with, you know, um, Columbia and uh, and Northwestern, and um, uh, also the theater department is right. great. That's that is a place that I, although my degree was not in theater because I was just very pragmatic and didn't really think about making a living. Yeah, journalism. That's why wait, my father is a journalist. Okay. Yeah, yeah, newscaster. A news news ran the news division for two big CBS affiliates in North Carolina. The Southeast is really um, has always been very strong with CBS uh, network, and he was at BTV in Charlotte and RAL in Raleigh for. 40 years wow. combined, I guess. Okay. And like I said, he was not just a reporter, not just on air, but also ran a news division. He um, opened up a satellite office in Fayetteville on the military base there for Desert Storm One. Mm. And uh, he also was their technology reporter for WRAL in the Research Triangle Park, where there's a lot of major oh, tech yeah. development because of the universities, Duke State, NC State at Carolina, et cetera, um, and North Carolina AT&T. And he, he was an, an early adapter of, of a lot of those. I think the understanding that, that, that the web was the future. Yeah. So you wanted to follow in his footsteps a bit and I did, yeah. be I, on camera, do that? Yeah. Ca- that was always something I was I knew that I was comfortable. I don't ask me to do long division. <laughs> now, the long division I can do. Fractions yeah. scare me. Yeah. Yeah. But I I have um, always been comfortable um, in speaking in public so and, where and did... doing the investigative stuff really would have interested me. And frankly, you'll find a lot of crossover with people that have pursued acting and journalism. And it's not because they're the same. They are not the same, but they do both require tenacity and curiosity. Mm-hmm. They both you have to have those qualities to do either one of those jobs well. Well, I can definitely see where the skills as a journalist. Uh, I don't know that everybody, you know, shares that in the acting world, but I can certainly see uh, from the standpoint of digging into a character, and like even if you're building your own, you know, kind of kind of crafting. Uh, your own story uh, along with the script that's going on, maybe a more analytical approach yeah. to than uh, necessarily purely instinctive approach. And a con- right. you have a to be curious. Combination of two of those. You do. You you have to work well with people. Yeah. You have to know that you will have more questions the further that you dive. Yeah. 
I can, as an oh, actor, I can see you, you on set now. Do. I can see you on set now, approaching the the director with like the little pad in your hand and going, "I have a few questions for you," and, <laughs> and you're just grilling them on on what your character's motivation is. You might be one of those. Uh, um, really digging. Well, I do like the process of <laughs> yeah. rehearsing and pulling it apart. Yeah. And, and television doesn't allow you that much time to do that. Right. So you have to be very self sufficient in television. Mm-hmm. But film and theater. Do allow for it, yeah. Which is one of the the reasons that I I do a play every year. I have to satisfy. Yeah, you're on that. stage a lot here yeah. in in L. A. Yeah. and have been for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your name is always popping up on uh, Center Theater Group and a bunch of other places. Right? I I know I've seen you do a bunch of stuff. All of them. All of them. When, when did the where was the little sharp turn where you got a journalism degree and mm-hmm. uh, where did what happened? Well, it happened at Carolina. Okay. I mean, honestly, it Started did. Started edging into theater a little bit? Yeah, and I was on stage a lot there. And because they had a professional rep company mm-hmm. that employed not just the um, – and by employed, I mean the broad sense of the word – that they used the the graduate students on their their equity Lort C – which is just a classification for the size of theater and the pay rate. Mm-hmm. They use the, the grad students for that, and they jobbed in actors from New York and oh, directors from yeah, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was an undergrad student, but I got cast in the production, so I could talk to people that were making a living at it. And it didn't seem so far away. It didn't seem out of reach. Yeah. Um, and then I went to do summer stock because I was enjoying the work on stage. And again, I was working with people in New York. And I, because they were unbiased and said, you could do this. You yeah. could, you could hang. Uh, you could compete because that is what it comes down to. Sure. If you're going to make a, a living at it, it doesn't have to be your vocation for it to be satisfying. And I think too many times people, miss that understanding that it's it's a calling it doesn't have to be a career right and when you find a place to do it it can uh, be very satisfying it, and it doesn't have to come with the paycheck for that satisfaction to happen yeah i mean you and i probably both know a lot of actors in this town who are supremely talented and you know have been working really hard for a long time and haven't necessarily broken through to a level where they can make a living as an actor but they continue to do it because it is just a love that they have they'll they'll do a play at any size theater they'll be That's a part right. of a, a local company they'll they'll say yes to as many things as they can and do great work and that satisfies them, and uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, that should be everybody's, exactly. you know, way they approach their work. And mm-hmm. you don't see enough people who actually really enjoy their job that much. Right. And this, and the converse is true also that just because you're paid doesn't mean that you're happy. No, <laughs> no, doing it. Yeah. So I have always seen that balance. My father is a wonderful actor, and he acted. In some really great theaters, I say great theaters, because i that's where I learned about theater, was in Charlotte, North Carolina, watching him mm-hmm. at the Mint Museum. Anybody that knows that theater knows, this is a, it's a high-level theater, because they set their standards high, and also because North Carolina is very committed to the arts. Our, our public school system, which I grew up in, always funded because they valued 
the performing arts. Yeah. So you had people that had grown up developing those skills. Yeah. And whether or not they made a living at it didn't mean that they were not actually proficient and even you know excelling in their art. The same is true in Raleigh, a theater that I helped start third over 30 years ago now with a, uh, an actor that a lot of people will know from musical theater, Terrence Mann. He was the original Javert in um, Les Mis. He was the original Beast in Beauty and the Beast. He was the original Rum Tum Tugger in Cats. And he had a really strong North Carolina connection because he went to the North Carolina School of the Arts. And we started uh, a musical theater that does really, really high-level productions. I mean, the people that come down are Broadway performers and directors and designers and um, another theater, their theater, Raleigh. It was started by a gal who was a little kid in those productions of the theater we started. And now, after years in New York, she's come back to create an even more intimate version of that. So I know that the people that come here to make a living can often lose their joy in it because because of the business yeah, side of it and how yeah. crushing that can be right. and yeah it's tough yeah my uh you know i became well aware of by the way i don't know how much you're getting paid by the north carolina arts uh foundation <laughs> whatever uh but you're doing a great job not a dime no i became but- very aware of uh when my son was pursuing acting uh and auditioning for colleges and north carolina schools kept popping up as you know highly touted for yes. places to go uh he didn't choose one of those he went to BU but he had to do that East Coast thing but it, it, I'd be very aware of oh there's a real commitment and also just kind of seeing the alumni that has come out of some mm-hmm. of those schools it's mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive mm-hmm. um, so yeah so anyway so they owe you a little something now um, well I, all I'm doing is paying back the foundation <laughs> that they gave me they yeah. really did yeah. and that's another thing you know we're talking about what it means to go home um, there's a part of me that thinks, ah, that would be very satisfying mm-hmm. to, to, to get to work with them again. And I have to make that more of a priority because I've, I've had opportunities that I just couldn't say yes to because it's so far away. And, and yet I, I don't want to ignore the time passing and knowing that it will be, it, it will be a good place to go back and use, use my, the tenderness that I have for that place. Uh, in in a very pragmatic way, yeah. you know, a real way, meaningful. Now, you did make the leap from North Carolina, and you got uh, some Broadway experience, yeah. like really early on. Um, well, I mean, you, did, yeah, you know what? I, I you took, had to pound the pavement for a uh, while. You bet I did. But you got you got in some pretty high profile shows mm-hmm. right away, uh, and. Um, but you, you made the move out here fairly quickly after that, didn't well, you? Well, I worked my way up through the chorus. Um, and that uh, the reason that I think that it's valuable to mention is because I know that one of the struggles with for young people now coming into our business is that they don't often get a chance to develop their skills and their understanding of the culture around the world of entertainment. And they don't get to find out whether or not they have the spirit for it because it isn't just talent. It is, do you have a gypsy soul? Because Mm. you're required to move around for this work. It just is the nature of it. If you want to have a long career, like I'm leaving right after this holiday to go shoot a new series in New Orleans because that's where it is. And I... 
the good news is I can sleep in hotel rooms just fine, but not everybody can. And I got to know that I am a gypsy um, because I I was working my way up through the chorus and tours that came back to Broadway. They were good, solid uh, um classic shows that allowed for long runs because they were proven. It was Cabaret and Zorba, the Greek and Fiddler on the Roof and shows that were that were time tested. So I had the the luxury of knowing what it's like to do a long run in a show. And that's a certain skill or a certain experience that you can only get with a show that's a hit. So um, after about Eight years in New York doing that and waiting tables in between sure. that time and taking right. dance classes and taking acting classes and paying $100 for a voice lesson, which was, you know, a lot of money back then. It's a lot <laughs> right. of money now. It was yeah. a lot of money then. Yeah. Um, knowing that I was sort of giving myself my own grad school uh, is what r- made me realize that I'm investing in in this long term. There was... I always knew I could go home if I needed to. And by that, I mean take that journalism degree and right. find a way to to use that edu- you know that education, that public school four-year college. Did yeah. you ever get to that point where you gave yourself a deadline and you're like, ah, if I don't you know, get to this certain point, or was it just never in doubt for you? It was. Uh, I did give myself a deadline. Yeah. I gave myself five years. Okay. From? From when I graduated from Carolina. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. All right. And it it worked within that five year period. Yeah. So after eight years of that world and and having the experience of being on Broadway and um, you know I, I had also done big roles in big shows at the theater that I helped start, so I knew what it was like to carry a show. Um, I uh, I realized that not. Not only it had a great range of experience, but I understood what it meant to do the same story eight times a week mm-hmm. for two years at a time. Right. But I also was deprived of watching television because I was on the road and I was working at night. Right. That's right. when the shows are. Right. Well, when VCRs, which for those of you who are too young to know what that is, <laughs> oh. it's called a video cassette, record, cassette, cassette recorder. recorder. Yeah. Um, I could finally watch television mm-hmm. because I could <laughs> record it. And by that time, when I left for college, shows like Dynasty were on, and I never really saw myself that way. That wasn't my image of the kind of characters that I would play. Not glamorous, um, fancy uh those kind of women, I just right. didn't see it. Night primetime soap operas, which mm-hmm. you know became yeah, you know, yeah. quite popular, and driven by that kind of power woman, right? Right. So when I could watch television, things had shifted a bit, and it was the shows that were on were Thirty Something, mm-hmm. China Beach, mm-hmm. L.A. Law. They were about women that were and, and characters and worlds that were more relatable to me. Even though one was about nurses in Korea, that was China Beach, and right. one was about lawyers, which I didn't really know that much about. But just the story seemed and the characters touched me more. Right, and uh, I. Th- finally was interested in television. It had never been something that I had considered. And that's why I said, all right, I'm going to go try this. And I packed up a used car that my dad helped me buy. And I drove cross country. And I knew two people, a gal that I'd waited tables with here, who I'm still really close to, who's one of the best acting coaches 
in Los Angeles now. Oh, well, actually, she's in New. She's all over the place. Her name is Lee Kilton Smith, and she's great. And we were we waited tables together um, at a place called Curtain Up in New York, and had stayed friends. And then um, a guy that I was dating, and that came out. So, it, <laughs> and I I started from scratch, really. Wow! But I was kind of right on time because I was thirty, and I knew how to work. And I knew how to. Were you good discipline. at auditioning? Yeah, yeah, I was good at that auditioning. That didn't intimidate you. No, okay. Um, because I also knew how to learn lines, and I had been on stage and been in front of people, and that's what I mean about working my way up. A mm-hmm. lot of people get thrown into opportunities way before they have the structural grid work built into their mind, and even to know how to to control their nervous system. Mm-hmm. And we all have a nervous system. I'm not saying we're all nervous people, but we all respond to whatever stimulus is happening around us. And we need, as actors, our job is to become private in public. So when you're playing a character, you have to find a way to be in your private world while there's a camera crew around you. Right. You have to project uh, vulnerability or certain emotions that... um, you're in control of. You have to live in imaginary circumstances. Yeah. Yep. You have to be real in imaginary circumstances. Right. And there's so many things (laughs) that are coming at you that are not imaginary, like the airplane that just flew overhead if you're doing an exterior shot in the middle of a take and they cut and you have to rewind, find your concentration again, and find that privacy again that will allow you to stay concentrated. Mm -hmm. When there are a lot of things that are going to distract you, how difficult was it for you to transition from being, you know, you you did the work and you had the structure and you worked your way up on from a stage perspective, but how difficult was it for you to adjust to the life of being on a set where yeah, there a is a question. camera in your face and and there are multiple takes and well, it, and it's a very mm-hmm. different process. I used I did some student films while I was still in New York mm-hmm. doing stage and so that, that helped, helped me understand what it meant to have that clapboard in and pick a scene up from the middle right. rather than, you know, from the begin tell you're not telling doing the story from the beginning out of sequence, right? right? Yeah. And to to know that there are camera crew members that are busy doing their job that's not the audience and you know on a stage in a stage environment everybody agrees at one moment in time when the curtain goes up that everyone's concentrating on the same thing that's not the way it is on a film set it's very disjointed but that's the process i'm not complaining about it that's just what it is it also allows for a beautiful product at the end um i did have to learn how to um manage what it takes for me to peak at a different time. When you're doing a play, your biorhythm develops over the rehearsal process and then over the, the process of tech, that your te- the technical rehearsals, you start to shift over from your daytime rehearsals into your nighttime um, uh, calls that, that mean that, okay, I'm going to stay up a little later and I sleep in a little later so that I'm peaking right. when I'm supposed to. You don't have that luxury in film or television maybe sitcom because the schedules are a little more consistent but you know you i i I said that i wasn't i knew about dynasty i had seen it but i never related to it well now i'm on it i'm on the reboot which (laughs) is funny playing one of those evil women on the cw and on the cw yeah (laughs) and and that shoots in atlanta so i'm 
having to fly right. and adjust to the time zone. Mm-hmm. And also we start on Mondays at 5 a.m. If you're a woman, 5 a.m. is a typical call for the women to get in hair and makeup. Hair and, makeup yeah. and you are always adjusting your yourself, your the way you eat, how you try to sleep in these hotel rooms, what your workout schedule can be. So it's a lot of um, behind-the-scenes stuff that people don't really think about when they're watching it, but you have to if you're the the one who's the product and you are you become part of the equipment that it takes to. And we're not equipment. We're not machines. So it's our job to learn what what we must do to manage well. Still learning, it sounds like. Oh, like, all the time. Uh, you've, you've never stopped having to figure mm. out how to you know adjust all your schedule or, or do with the material. Or here you are doing Dynasty uh, at a time in your life where years ago you were going, well, that's not my thing. It's so interesting. that mm. And you found a way for that to be your thing. Uh, probably the hair helps, right? How big is the hair? I haven't seen I you on Dynasty yet. I love that you know that. Mm, the hair is <laughs> not really big. Uh, the, the, what was fun for me, I, I usually never am called on to do this, but I, I had to I w- had to wear my hair with a visor because I had to play tennis. And my <laughs> husband, I'm not a tennis player, but my husband is. And he taught me when we met. You know, I, I, he taught me the strokes and because I was a dancer, he knew that I could do the footwork, but I'm not competitive. Right. I don't care about winning. Just not my thing. Probably because the, I spent so much time in a subjective endeavor, like the arts. It's subjective. And even when you don't get a role, I don't think of it as a win or a loss because I know that it's about what fits for the, for the story, yeah. which isn't going to work for and not everybody fits every story right so but but tennis you have to practice to be able to win and i'm just not that interested but i had to go out and look like i was a fierce tennis player and damned if i didn't man he taught me well i look like i'm a real player because i know how to hit but i um so i had to wear my hair up in a visor. And then, and, you know, it was just more like my, my everyday, not everyday Sharon style, but more Sharon style. Now, this show that I'm doing for YouTube set in the 90s, they want the model, the pictures they've shown me for the look is Ivanka Trump. <laughs> so I'm going to have... 90s era Ivanka? 90s, 1991. Big oh. shoulder pads. Yeah. I... We'll have to wear masks while or I'm Ivana. in hair and makeup. Which, which, I'm which, sorry, not yeah. Ivanka. You're yeah, right, right, Ivana. Right. Yeah, Ivana yeah, yeah. for all the hairspray. There'll be a lot of hairspray oh, involved. Yeah. <laughs> See, still learning, learning how to uh, be competitive. Probably learning how to wear a visor. How many times have you worn a visor in your life? For crying out loud! Yeah. Um, uh, I'm in an orange jumpsuit this week too because I'm I'm a, I'm a criminal in Criminal Minds, which is going to be fun. That's I always like that. I've worn jumpsuits on a couple of shows, like Desperate Housewives. Yeah. And what was the other one that I wore a prison suit on? Oh yeah, Law and Order, and and that's. Got to be one of my favorite costumes because it's so comfortable. Listen to you uh, just talking about, I mean, uh, talking about being a working actor and the ability to, you have been on certain things 
you know, for long term. Of course, NYPD Blue is probably mm-hmm. the thing that right. so many people talk to you about. Right, and, right. Uh, I, I saw actually a lot of people talking to you around the time of Stephen Bochco's death, mm-hmm. and you had some amazing stuff to say about him, and we can dig into that. But um, you've been a working actor. I mean, steadily a working actor. That's a hard thing to do. But and it's uh, it, talk about a gypsy lifestyle. You just listed off like a handful of shows right there. Uh, if you look at Sharon Lawrence's IMDb, you will uh, glaze over at some point because it's going to be all night reading to see all the <laughs> different things you've done. Uh, well, you've been around that as long as I have. Um, that was when they were also. Well, now I think as as an actor, just imagine how many more opportunities there are, even than when I started. Just because the of, amount of content yeah, that's being produced, yeah, especially television, yeah, really exciting. And I feel that as a as a woman, I I ran Women in Films Foundation for years, right? And our uh, our our mission was to to balance things out, and and the 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 beginnings of that really started with the executive positions. That's where women in film was finding their power early on mm-hmm. uh, in the corporate aspect or the executive level. I, I shouldn't say corporate because a lot of these were independent um, studios, and of course the agency, excuse me, and the, and the networks. And now it's it's also about the 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 content creators. And I'm an, uh, on the advisory board of a group called We for She, which only focuses on female television writers and directors. That's all we serve. And it's great to see how we can influence the the understanding about what it takes to um, balance this industry. Yeah, there, there are some really big strides being made, uh, largely due to the fact that there is more content out there. But, uh, you know, producers and casting people and also female showrunners i mean shonda rhimes uh, Mm. just has done an amazing job at uh you know creating a bench a beachhead for herself and also bringing in talent and mature talent uh you've got viola davis you know is robin wright doing her work on house of cards um what else was I? Uh, Ryan Murphy's of? world, Ryan and Murphy's he world. has, um, you know, he's got a big initiative that he is fulfilling so beautifully. With he wanted half of his directors to be women, right. and they are uh, writing staffs filled with women, and so much more diversity than before. Oh, I was uh, Julia Roberts just doing this show with mm-hmm. uh, Sam Esmail, um, mm-hmm. Homecoming, which is a phenomenal work, and you know, but. Julia Roberts is in her, what, 50s now? Is she in her early 50s? Maybe. And, um, you know, there is, a, there is a point at which I think there was a time, certainly, where if you had thought about being a woman and being an actor in your 50s, that you were just going to have to start to wind it down. Um, and I'm sure there is still some consideration of that, but there is so much opportunity, it seems now, for a wide range of of ages and faces and it, it it even if not all the tv is that good i think a new golden age of tv is appropriate because it's opening up for so much different kinds of talent to create and to write and to act and to you know tell their stories and and we ha- i'm a big audience member yeah. you know yeah. I, I don't want to say i'm a big that's not what i mean i'm an i'm an a rabid audience. I watch a lot. And what I want to see has changed. So mm-hmm. 
I'm glad. I'm really grateful that that people are creating television. Yeah, as a consumer. For, yeah. yeah, as a, as somebody who wants right. to really be challenged and see entertaining. I mean, I I love the fact that I don't have to sit down and go. Uh, let's go watch fill in the blank of a movie I've seen before. It's like no, there's there are new episodes of something really interesting available all the time, and if it's good, it really it organically yeah. you know rises to the top. I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff out there, but this is kind of the great thing is that people doing really good work. It gets noticed and it hangs around a little bit and goes viral and word spreads and it becomes this hit uh, yeah. at a level that is very different now in terms of what a hit means. Uh, it, can we talk about NYPD Blue a yeah, little sure. bit? Um, because that was, you know, from it, it doesn't seem that long ago to me. When I start doing the math, it kind of freaks me out. Uh, but it still was an era that you were basically talking three or four major networks That's at right. the time. And uh, that was a groundbreaking show. It was in the mold of the kinds of things that you had talked about, yes. that you had discovered. I remember, I mean, when I had my VCR, I was recording things like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere and then, you know, kind of those grounded in reality shows that I really responded to and then it extended into the 90s with L.A. Law and, I mean, Bochco was like doing stuff that was blowing people away. Mm -hmm. uh, that show in particular, I remember thinking, this is a game changer. I mean, it, and it must have felt that way to you as an actor to say, we're doing this on TV? We're, we're actually exploring these kind of characters? We're digging this deep? On television, and now it seems somewhat standard to to dig a little deeper. But for network TV, that must have been a phenomenal feeling. Yes, because I think because we knew we were in hand the hands of somebody that was so masterful, Bajko and and David Milch, right? Um, and I think you cannot underestimate what it meant for that network, for ABC and Bob Iger and those people that were running it and Ted Harbour to take the chance to be willing to um, stand up for a show that was going to challenge the the status quo. And in the face of the pushback which was happening in the early 90s from the conservative right, the right that was growing. There was a guy named Reverend Wildman. I remember. Who uh, used the media to uh, to voice his disdain for what he believed was um, degrading. And he probably never, I don't know whether he did never, whether he ever watched the show or not, but our response certainly mine was that the show has such humanity that whatever the disapproval of these precepts of what was acceptable and unacceptable um people needed to decide for themselves mm -hmm. they had to watch for themselves to see if this was in bad taste if it was smut <laughs> or or if it was um, filled with uh, an 
unassuming grace. The way these characters and and their their uh, tenderness, right, uh, in in the face of you know a tough world of criminals and yeah. the criminal justice system, and yeah, but you were seeing real people go through real things. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of of art like that is that it may be in the scenario of something that you don't know, like being a cop and, and prosecuting criminals and chasing down, you know, but. They were still human beings, and we get to see that side of them. And that's and where were, we have the entry mm-hmm. point to relate to them, right. even in their kind of... And the fulcrums for those shows, particularly Sipowitz, because he was the con- the constant. Yeah. He was a flawed human, but everybody knew he was a good human. Right. And that's the difference, because there are there's certainly storytelling that just glorifies malevolence. And that I, I object more to than certainly nudity or bad language because you can tell what the energy is behind it. Mm-hmm. And if it's like Stephen Bochco and David Milch were were honoring, it is the the evolution, the 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 spiritual evolution of someone who faces the 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 worst of humanity and still manages to ascend beyond it beyond his own addiction beyond his own um temper beyond his own loss losses mm-hmm. uh and that's what Sipowitz became is yeah. somebody who who rises to his the the better angels and and these guys that were telling these stories that's what they loved. That's why Deadwood is so interesting. That's why, oh, <laughs> right? And don't isn't it even great? get me. Can we, can we talk for an hour <laughs> yeah. about Deadwood now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's great. I mean, that's that's. I don't. I can't be any more eloquent than you just were about that. I I, I hope that people who maybe were too young to have watched that show get a chance to go back. I, I would imagine NYPD Blue holds up. It does. Even for today's oh, yeah. audiences. I hear from people all the time who are rewatching it. I think it is available on a streaming service now. I can't tell you which one because there were strange ones that, that I didn't even know about, like Heroes and Icons. That network came about right, and was right. running it. But but I think there are other, there are other think, ways. You can get it. It's I think not, NBC's On Demand uh, app allows you to mm-hmm. it was nbc no it was abc NYPD. Uh, but it, it was, was a property of um of 20th century, 20th century Fox, Fox. so that may be right. where the library is i that's uh, probably know. on your hulu somewhere but that's if just... you know that's the way you'll get to know Stephen bochco yeah and um that and and his his book you know will tell you he was very candid in his book about what it was like to be the kind of writer and an empresario and and nurturing talent so if if it's if Somebody wants to learn about how to how to be more than um, a one man band. You find, read how Stephen Bochco did it. How mm-hmm. he found how to build a team and build the relationships with the networks that I was just telling you right. about to make them want to stand up and with him in the face of a cultural pushback. Pushback, yeah, and, and create one of the timeless series. I mean, that thing is just I went around for 12 seasons? You know, I mean, think about that. Yeah. That just, yeah. And after, Lu- I mean, spoiler alert, some main characters don't stay around very long. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Zipowitz, he's there for oh, a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Sharon, I, you know, I, we could, I could feel like I could talk to you forever and you probably. Oh, is that all me? You probably were feeling, yeah. This oh, is, my God. This is all your work, you all kidding? the work you've done. 
Then, no, this is just actually a sampling. I mean, it goes back. Wow. Uh, this, uh, TV We're looking at pages and pages of things. Yeah, I mean. Isn't just, that something? Uh, yeah, I mean. Well, I'll be. Monk, Desperate Housewives, yeah, Boston I, I'm Legal. reunited with, um, on Monk, I played um, Ted Levine, who is the captain, uh, the detective captain. I played his girlfriend on that. And now I'm reunited with him in this series with Kirsten Dunst that um, George Clooney and uh, his company are producing. So that's exciting. That's fun for me wow. to be able to go back and work with Ted. Yeah. Um, I've gotten to that point where I'm circling back around to husbands. I ran into Tim Matheson the other <laughs> night at dinner. And, you know, we realize we've we've been husband and wife. We've been we're, fiancés, werewolves together. I mean, so it's interesting. Oh, that's just hilarious. Went, yeah. After decades, you... That's awesome. It's like it's like folk dancing. You circle back around to your partner. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've got a feature you're shooting um, or have? Yeah, a couple of features. The Lost yeah. Husband, Josh The Lost Dumel, Husband I just did with Leslie, Leslie Bibb. Bibb and Josh Dumel and Nora Dunn. And then I did another feature called Killing Eleanor um, with my dear friend Annika Marks, who stars and wrote at... But also Jane Kaczmarek and Betsy Brandt oh, yeah. and um, uh, Tom Sadowski. You're back on Shameless next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we mentioned Dynasty on the, on the CW. Good Lord. How did you fit me in? Why would you fit <laughs> yeah, me in? It's a holiday week. Oh, okay, good. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving Happy holidays. to you. Yeah. Poinsettias yeah. for Christmas or poinsettias for Christmas, depending <laughs> on where y'all from. Um, Christmas is always produced. I mean, Christmas is always pronounced the same way, though, right? <laughs> Let's not change that. Christmas is. Uh, it's the Mary that uh, it gets Murray. Murray. Uh, you're awesome. I, I think so I'm going to do there. a very nice intro because you have been nice. Oh, wow. And, I've forgotten about the fact that, yeah, oh, I uh, this was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, you were going to. Unless it turns ugly in the next 30 graded. seconds. <laughs> okay, here's where, here's where I grade you because uh, I've kept you too long. Uh, this is the lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. First thought, uh, favorite uh, stage play all time? That I did or watched? Just any. Well, I just saw one that will blow you away, A Christmas Carol, uh, by a one-man show by by Tony Winner, um, Jefferson Mays at the Geffen Playhouse. It was. I mean, I've seen a lot of things, but that one I can't. I'll this never forget. Local in Los Angeles, and people are raving about that. Oh my wow. god! Uh, if you, you were forced up on a karaoke stage, your go-to song would be. Um. Nah. Come on. Hit me with your best shot. Oh, Pat Benatar. <laughs> yeah, no. Nah, I could you see you doing right, that. Right out, yeah. Uh, okay, now, sing a line from that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a real tough oh, cookie with a long history. Oh, okay, man. that's one line. Oh, you got it. Damn. Oh, wow, you threw me off my game. I did. <laughs> uh, what's your karaoke song? I'm not really song? sure how I could react to that. <gasps> what's your karaoke it, song? Uh, uh, well, it was Sweet Caroline before that became kind of standard, but uh, the one I actually like to pull out, uh, depending on the audience, is uh, I Think I Love You from the Partridge Family. <laughs> oh my God, how sweet. If That's the audience lovely. is old enough, if, you know, I have to scan them first, and otherwise then I'd do something stupid like uh, a, a low-octave version of Like a Virgin by Madonna, which gets big laughs, laughs, and I don't have to sing it well. Because um, <laughs> neither did she. <laughs> oh, ooh! Hot on, take on Madonna. On. She didn't have, I mean, it's no, three gonna, notes. I'm not going to defend it's that. It's three whole notes, no, right? exactly. Right. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> I forgot what my other questions were. The Pat Pinatar uh, singing Did it really throw, threw yeah, me yeah, off. She, yeah. she was a great singer. She's right. a great singer. I, yeah. Final question. Uh, I am uh, legally and contractually obligated to ask this question uh, from my uh, overlords. Uh, have you ever worked with and uh, a monkey? And if you haven't, <laughs> would you be willing to? So first part first. Well, you have know, you I've ever got all those pages. I don't want to. Uh, I mean, hey, uh, I've, you, worked, I've, worked with some, I've worked with some really hairy men. Um, but <laughs> yeah, have okay, I worked with a monkey? Name those. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, yeah, I was asking for that. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think I've worked with a monkey. Would I be willing to? Mm, I, I would love to have worked with the monkeys back in the day. They oh, were my wow. first crush. Oh, which who was your favorite? Well, I started out with Peter. Actually, I mean, I love Davy, but Peter Torque was. Peter Torque? I, I can't. I can't explain it. Oh, I guess the bowl haircut. I don't know why. Maybe I was just. Pe- I think I, I. It was then I was deciding I liked character men. <laughs> That's so funny. You're a Peter gal. Well, that just sounds terrible. I'm, at least that was a terrible way to end this podcast. Sharon Lawrence is a Peter gal. Well, I the w- end. <laughs> I'd rather work with a monkey than be known as a Peter gal. Um, I want to know who your overlords are that are interested in my 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 monkey business. It's just the re- <laughs> it's just the required questions. I don't work for anybody. I just like to ask the monkey question. Okay. Uh, Sharon, uh, you are a delight. I, I hope I can drag you back in again when you have 19 yeah. other things to talk about that you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, excellent. You know, we can just talk about Or we know, could just sing our favorite. We could just, we could uh, just sing. We could just sing our favorite karaoke tunes. All right. Uh, we're going to go now. Thank you, Larry. Get a monkey. Get a monkey.